Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Should our names be capitalized? No, they should not. Very excited to have our guest on today. Before we introduce him, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are on this podcast. I'm, of course, Richard. Hello, everyone. And I'm also Litauer. Hi. I'm the only host today is basically what I'm saying. Also very excited to have our guest on today, who I will now introduce. One of them actually is a co-host. So we're going to have Amanda Caseri sit in the other chair. Amanda, how is the other chair? Is it comfy? Is it good? Hello from the other side. It's awesome. Adele's here. Beautiful. Love the energy today. Amazing. Okay, cool. Another co-host that we have on this podcast, not of this podcast, but of another podcast called Open Source Stories, is Julia Ferrioli. Julia, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And a third host coming today with a wonderful yellow sweater, but I'm colorblind, so who knows, is Juniper Lovato. Juniper, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be here. Excellent. You're the only person who I'm going to comment on your physical appearance. So it's not you. It's just your excellent taste. Thank you all so much for being here. Was that weird? I hope that wasn't weird. We're just going to roll right on. So why did I invite these three wonderful people to this podcast today? Well, it's because all of them have something in common. They're all co-authors on a wonderful article. And I think that's probably the best place to go forward. Normally, at this point of the podcast, we would do all sorts of introductions about how Juniper is a PhD candidate at UVM or how Julia has just started a really awesome consulting for open source group with Josh Simmons called Open Chapters, which you really should check out. And you should also check out the Fosse podcast that may have been released before this, where Josh talks about it when he was at Fosse in Oregon. Or I could talk about Amanda's amazing work at Google with really, really awesome people and how she's always interested in metrics and what can be applied and how she works with Julia and all the fun stuff. But we've done all that. There are other podcasts. And instead, we're going to focus today on this article they've written and why they felt the need to write it. So which one of you would like to tell me the title of the article? That sounds easy. I can do it. We titled it Beyond the Repository. Best Practices for Open Source Ecosystems Researchers, which was not the original title. The original title was actually 10 Simple Rules for uh, Researchers and Open Something. Yeah, that's why we didn't keep it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. 10 Simple Rules sounds like a listicle. I'm glad you ditched that one. Now, you mentioned open source ecosystem researchers. Is this different than open source ecosystems and open source researchers? What are you trying to get at here? Who's your audience? We were very deliberate about the phrasing of the title. So there are plenty of people who are doing research that produces open source software. This is not necessarily for them. We are aiming to really provide best practices for people looking at open source ecosystems in their research. It's a fine distinction. No, it's a wonderful distinction. And I'm glad you made it. This brings me on to my next question, which is situating this article within the wider landscape of academic research. Is this a blog post or a Tumblr post or is it in nature and science? Where is this being placed within the system of academic rigor? Is it peer reviewed? So the article is in the Association for Computing and Machinery, Q, which is a sort of a communication section of ACM. So this is more of an editorial piece than a peer-reviewed article or a blog, I guess, sort of a little bit in between. I kind of want to see the Tumblr for this. 
because I think that would be fun. Tumblr for this would be fantastic. Now, you mentioned 10 simple things. Did you have those things itemized before you wrote it? Or at least can you tell me what are you talking about when you say 10 things? To give context, the 10 simple things, which I'm sure started a very long time ago, is actually an ongoing series in PLOS biology. I'm not quite sure why it's in the biology area for PLOS, but it is in PLOS biology. And other articles that have been produced as a part of that series are things like 10 simple rules for like incorporating an open science into your works. It's a pattern, it's a series, and it is always aimed at improving research methodology. It's actually usually more general research methodology. It's never like super discipline specific. So that was where that initial part came from was first of all, kind of, I think we knew about this series and there's a lot of back channel chatter that the three of us have had for years about where when you're not considering certain aspects of working with the community and the software and the technology and the multi-layered networks that is open source, it runs afoul. People get burnout, get hurt professionally, get hurt. Like there are all these places where things can go wrong and it may not be something that is easy to understand or easy to reference without having that point of reference that can be introduced or chatted about in a collective way. I like that. It's good to bring together the best things that we have learned as a group and to share it effectively. Now, one of you mentioned the word editorial, right? Editorial means that it's not necessarily the result of a research product. It's much more like here's generally what we think about what's going on. And I would say that, yes, editorial is probably the closest approximation. There was no experiment to report on in our piece. That said, we do reference a lot of existing research and a lot of existing science. So there's almost an element of lit review in there as well, which oftentimes isn't present in editorials. Somewhere yellow paper, white paper, one of the one of the colored papers. Oh, yeah. And for this group, we all have a lot of lived experience. And so I think even if this is an editorial, I think we have really unique perspectives from the different sort of expertise that we have that really lends itself to this kind of article for writing best practices for researchers, for open source, for industry, because we are all a part of these communities. I'm so curious too, Juniper, you and I talk about this quite a bit too, that when you do curriculum design and you're thinking about trying to figure out like, okay, so for this like package of what I'm going to have as a course or where we teach, you can't just throw together a bundle of talks and hand it to a group of students, right? So in terms of like creating what could be reference materials without necessarily having to go through the textbook publishing industry, right? Like that was also, I think, a lot of the motivation when we talked about it is like, can we give something to people that they can put in the syllabus and have a conversation about, even if it's not the ending state? So it on to my next question. And I'm aware that we haven't talked a lot about the content. I would really like to get this out as soon as possible. But before that, I'm still curious about this whole idea of open source researchers. Now, there are people who run university programs to help out open source managers. For instance, I'm thinking of Georg Lenk and the Chaos Group. There are people who run open source program offices at universities, Saeed Chowdhury at CMU, Kendall Fortney at UVM, who do research on open source, but may not necessarily be doing publications on open source. There are researchers who work in open source, for instance, the Cross Institution, who do work at UC Santa Cruz, as well as the people at UVM. Inverso, 
What do you mean again? Because there's just so many different like layers to what research actually entails. There's like Carnegie Mellon's other work with Bogdan Stradlewski, which is straight out 100%. This is science. So confused. Who are you trying to get to and why a journal article? I think I can take that maybe as one of the open source researchers. I think this could involve anybody who's using data about open source folks who are implicated inside of open source communities and these ecosystems. I think the main target audience for this editorial was really people who are doing academic research on open source ecosystems. So these would be the kind of people who are looking at the social technical system of open source and using it as a sort of a natural ecosystem to study. And so this could be similar to somebody who's doing anthropology in a cultural environment to somebody who's doing data science on different sort of innovations in certain technological systems to somebody who's really trying to understand the governance structures of how these open source projects sort of work and operate and change over time. So I think it's a broad spectrum of who it's sort of the target audience, but we're hoping that this sort of gives some guidelines into sort of how to treat these open source communities with respect and with dignity while you're sort of learning about them. I would also add on to that because all of that is definitely kind of the primary goal. But speaking to somebody coming from industry and seeing how the lines between industry and academia are shifting to be a little bit more blurry, my subversive goal was also to prompt people who are using research around open source ecosystems to have a framework that they can critically analyze it um, instead of taking it at face value so they can properly contextualize it. I would add on to that. I think you're both being very kind in the we're trying to encourage you and move you in the right direction. I definitely know that even starting outlining some of this for me very much came from a place of high emotion where I was very upset at the way that some researchers and some folks in academia and industry were using a global community as a playground test bed for their theories about how things work, even when it was not novel science. So even when it was something that has already been shown, and this impacts people's lives, right? Like there are people who work in a full community basis and a full online basis, and they do it out of with no monetary incentive whatsoever. Maybe they do get some advantage in a professional industry where they have identified themselves as lead of something and that allows them to then build on top of that with their career. I don't want to push that aside. We talk about incentive structures as a part of this work as even as well. But for me, I feel like on top of the academic industry piece, there was a part of the like, stop treating people with disrespect. Your ideas are not more important than somebody else being able to like, go out to dinner, go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and have time with people who they care about. There's a very social element in there that I feel like we try to positively frame for a group of people. But this was also really seeded by a lot of like, I can't believe someone did that. Do they not understand how that's impacting other people or do they just not care? And so you know, we all talk about the socio element of the social technical system that is open source all the time. I don't want to hold that and be like, oh, we're being really altruistic. No, a lot of this was also us feeling like very upset that people who we cared about were being negatively impacted by someone else's either thoughtless or careless work. 
Thank you, Amanda, for saying this. Most of the best practices that we outline in the paper did come from a place of pain and sadness and hurt, frustration. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't easy to turn that hurt and frustration into positive best practices instead of just saying repeatedly, don't do this, don't do this. So hopefully people can take the best practices that we do outline and use them so that we don't get hurt more. I'll just say that I think this is probably true for most human systems and human subjects that are studied in research, right? So like there is always this tension between whether or not this research is doing good for the community itself. And I think that's something we wanted to reflect on a lot. And I think that there is like, there's a lot of researchers who are really excited about open source. It's this rich data. It's online. That's exciting for people. And it's these really interesting human systems that are interacting with those few technical systems. And so there is an understanding of why this would be a really exciting new area of research. But I think when area of research is really young, we haven't really set out what the best practices, what the norms, what our values are in sort of this research community. And so I think sort of all part of our motivation here was to put this towards the center of the conversation a little bit more for us to sort of open up the conversation. Like what are our norms as researchers studying open source communities and how can we better articulate that and come to terms with what we're doing? So I think there have been definitely some growing pains and we can do a lot better than we have. But I'm also really excited to see how excited people are about open source and researching these systems, but I think we can do it a lot better than we have. So I'm reading through the paper and I'm looking at the nine different principles that you have, not 10, but that's fine. That's fine. There's probably some underlying one that you didn't want to mention that's really there and we'll get to that. And short of going through and just listing them all, I'm noticing a few of them actually apply to other fields, right? And apply to basically all data collection fields. They just need to also be applied to open source. These are things like uh, get consent from and consult with communities being studied if gathering data about people in the community. That's 101 for any ERB, for any university. And I see hands going up and I'm just going to ignore them because, yes, that is an important point and we can adapt it directly to open source. And that's why you bring it up. And that's great. What I want to do is talk about the lines in here that are explicitly about open source communities and open source researchers. And so I want to start with the first one, which I'm going to be assume was number one for a reason, which was always treat open source ecosystems as systems, quote, in production, unquote. Can you explain to me what you were thinking when you wrote that and what you mean? Julie, I'll yes. take a stab at it first. Yes. Nope. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> this is where it's the unmute part. There are and have been researchers who, when they're wanting to show or have evidence. So talking about the publication review process, peer review, getting things published. When you don't have data from a new live experiment, the question is, is whether or not this is novel, did it have an impact? And even for folks who are not working on a PhD, novel, for folks who are working on mastering a subject, for whatever that word is still used for, but we're talking about like mastering a subject for a specific graduate degree, you have to show that you have evidence on like something that you're working on, right? So there are research, there are researchers at a, we referenced this in the article, there are researchers at a US university who the entire university was banned from being able to commit changes to the Linux kernel because they were doing it in a way that was actually using people's time and energy in a way that the community moderators and the community maintainers looked at and they were like, so first of all, you're trying to prove something that already exists. And this is not your playground. 
This is not your test bed. This is not your experiment bed. This not only impacts computers around the world, but this also impacts our time and our attention from things that should be used in other way. So I think that first piece of even saying like open source is an area that may be automated, it may be added in, it affects people's livelihoods. You can't treat this like it's existing external to those systems. There is that piece around like this has impact and is tied into the technology fabric that exists now. I'd like to add on because there's also the industry component here. When as much as we would like to think that everybody using open source is doing it in a responsible, sustainable way, the fact is, is that most people aren't. And that means anything from like always pulling from head to not cashing your dependencies, et cetera. And when people use open source to say, I wonder if we can introduce a bug in this system without anybody knowing and see how fast they're going to catch it. Well, that can affect production systems. And those can be production systems that you don't know what they're doing and how they're doing it. So water treatment plants, you could be affecting by updating some Node.js project. Not sure how, but... That's something that theoretically could happen. So we just really do have to recognize that we cannot get a full picture of the consequences of this type of research. So when I think of things always being in production, literally, they're always in production. I just want to add on to that, the bringing up the like, could this potentially hurt a real world system? I just finally finished Nicole Perloff's book, sent it to Julia. I know Julia is reading that now as well, which is amazing. But it really emphasizes that working in open source, your intent may not be to cause something that is affecting and eventually might end up honestly as like could be interpreted as a criminal act. Your intent may not be that, right? But malware is a thing. There's a lot more cybersecurity concerns that are happening around the open source ecosystem. Again, where like intent matters. And sometimes intent doesn't matter when the outcome of that may be loss of life or systems or resources or services. And who gets held accountable for that is a question that's coming up. Regulation is trying to pass for that right now to hold some people accountable versus the people who create the systems and deploy those systems accountable. So this question, again, around like intent, autonomy, when you put something out into the world, how are you responsible for it? But also how are other people responsible interacting with you? I think that all like that's more of the complex space we're working in now around trying to figure out like where does consent live? Who gets to have consent? Who gets to have control? And I think that's a really messy place right now. Glad you brought up the example of a university messing with a production system because it did happen. Michigan was working on the Git kernel or Linux kernel and had students go and just introduce stuff and see how long it took to get patched or merged. And that was a bad idea. And the whole thing got banned. There are more details online. I'm mentioning it because people may not have known about that. And it's a really interesting story. At the same time, Julia, your emphasis on production systems being affected, I felt like didn't go far enough. Any system that involves people that's affected should be taken into account when you're a data researcher. Someone just having to think about you should be taken into account when you're a data researcher. Because if you're not thinking about that, that means you're working replace of entitlement, which is really crappy. And maybe don't do that. 
instead think about how you can work together with your communities to make it something that they want to do as well and something that does more benefit than harm. Production as the end line for ethical values leads to a lot of really thorny edge cases that are going to ultimately hurt the communities of people who aren't working on production-ready systems. I wholeheartedly agree. That is one extreme example that often gets people to care in ways that they somehow can't care about people. But when I say production systems, I also mean the social systems that people live in. And I think it leads really nicely into the consent side of things and how thorny that gets when you are affecting the production systems that are people. I knew you knew that. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners knew you knew that. So I'm really glad you brought that up and I couldn't agree more. Super excellent stuff to think about. I also want to ask directly, these are best practices. This is not the end all to all conversations. Therefore, it's done and it's over and we figured out the complexity issues and now we can all go home and have s'mores, right? This is saying, here's a problem, just know it and work it into your systems by knowing it in the same way that racism is never done. We just have to acknowledge it and try to work in and be better people on a daily basis. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And just as open source is a, always in production, so is the scientific process. And so I think these will change over time, especially as technology changes. So I think that's important for us to always be evolving our norms, depending on our values as researchers, but also as our interaction as social animals changes with technology. Excellent. Love that. Speaking of social animals, your next point is also really good. I think, I mean, they're all really great points. And that's the idea of putting them together in a paper. They all get in a party and that's only those nine points dancing around. But assume that the economic incentives and availability of the people who keep the lights on are not evenly distributed. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Sure. So there are a bunch of studies out there around who gets funded in open source, who gets compensated, which is different than funded for their work in open source. And as more companies enter the open source space, have entered, get my tenses right, there are assumptions that people make about who is getting compensated in some form or another for their work in open source. It used to be that you could kind of assume that it was volunteer, but now that people are employed by companies to work on open source full time. And we don't necessarily know who is getting paid and who isn't. It is really hard to actually understand the motivations and the expectations around people's participation in open source. So when we're thinking about studying open source ecosystems, we have to be aware that we may not have the data to properly contextualize participation in these ecosystems. And it's not just finances. It is also even having the privilege of time to dedicate to open source is not available to all. So you might think that a certain population has no interest in participating in open source, when in fact, their nights and weekends are taken up by other activities that they can't set aside, other obligations that they can't set aside. So we've outlined a few different types of bias that might contribute to 
conclusions that aren't necessarily correct when looking at open source participation. It was very hard to summarize all of, like each one of these sections is a chapter or a book in and of itself. I think the point that I want to make sure we don't walk away without saying about equity and open source as well is that I remain deeply concerned, and I know we all do, that it's just not individual equity, it's organizational equity and organizations that are starting to feel like they are trying to take advantage of antiquated mental models to advance their own fundraising. So organizations are some centralized organizations that may or may not pass down money to individuals who are doing work, but who may exist to create space. And I'm going to put quotes around that. I'm going to make sure I say that like I did it with my hand. I want to make sure I say it. So organizations that are highly centralizing resources because they are selling the message that they are able to get that down to where it matters. When we don't know if that's actually the case because we have no transparency or reporting into those very large foundations with a capital F as to where that money is going. It's centralizing power. It's centralizing resources in a way that is not transparent to the community. They are not providing the resources for us to understand where and how those are being shared. And they're using things like the XKCD comic that shows the nice little person as this little building block inside this big structure that without them, the world will fall over. And by glossing over that, all of those big building blocks represent billion dollar businesses and nonprofits that are getting the money, that are committing resources to those projects and to those communities. And so when you're talking about trying to solicit and move money around, we can't ignore the very large industry that is open source, that has all of that money moving around in it. And where it's going is a question we should all be asking. I'll also add that there's a lot of invisible labor in open source. So this is another sort of area where we want people to think beyond the repository. The data doesn't show everybody who's actually involved in all of the labor and all of the work that goes into creating an open source project. And so that's something that's really important to consider. And that may take more labor than just sort of observing the data where you actually need to go out and sort of ask questions to these open source communities and to really talk to people or to get involved and to really understand sort of more the contextual picture that Julie was talking about earlier. Who is actually keeping the lights on? There are a lot of people who are not making commits. I think that is so important too, because the data that we capture is the data that gets researched. If you look at research that examines repositories, open source repositories, a lot of them pull from the same data set, which is a GitHub dump of activity. And so what you're seeing there is just the activity that GitHub has decided to record. And as Juniper said, there's a lot of invisible labor that goes on behind the scenes that never makes it into that activity log. So we need to understand and account for that missing information in some other way or downscope the research question. And this is where I also think it's important to bring up because I would love to hear both of your thoughts and opinions on this. I know we have all been talking even more recently about how do you walk the line, either in industry or in academia, between representation matters, what gets counted counts, all of these ideas of like, if we don't have the information, we can't know where change is affected. 
and where even asking the question and capturing that information is putting people at risk in the physical systems they live in, right? So for the communities that we are a part of and we care about, for the communities we are not necessarily representative of, but that we still care about, how do we, as researchers and people working in open source, like how do we protect that information so that people are able to be seen and be visible where also aspects of their identity is at risk by the state and the community they live in. I think that they need to be a part of the conversation, right? Leaving out communities from the scientific process of the research process leaves open these vulnerabilities without giving them a voice to what kind of research is being done about them without their consent. And I think taking into consideration really awesome standards that already kind of exist, like the care principles, where you're sort of considering the collective benefit of these populations, their authority to control their data, their responsibility toward the populations and the ethical uh, approaches that we take to doing this kind of research is really important in sort of maintaining this dignity online. I also have a little soapbox. I don't want to get too into it, but I also think there's like a big issue with what we are considering public information and public data. And I think this is sort of a tension that's really emerging right now in general. I think what we are starting to consider acceptable surveillance in public is really being challenged and is at odds right now. And I think in the meantime, while we're figuring out what the correct and appropriate norms for what public sort of data is, that it's really important for us to sort of maintain the informational and contextual integrity of this information and sort of make sure that we're maintaining people's dignity and um, security and privacy while we're doing this kind of research. That was my soapbox. I'm done. Absolutely. And I think that one of the areas that is unique in open source is the various identities that people can hold. Because if you're talking about like a medical study, when you're talking about one participant, they are one participant. They're a patient with medical data. When you're talking about open source, you can have any number of identities within an open source context because open source is not one thing. And so when we're looking at gaining consent for participation, when we're looking at data across the entire ecosystem, understanding that one person may not actually be considered one person person, but multiple different facets of their identity that they would potentially want to keep distinct and separate from each other. It gets really thorny. And so you have to consider these issues and build them into your research methodologies and make sure that IRB understands the the nuance there. I love the idea of nuance. Juniper, I'm glad you got to communities and the ethics of involving your communities and getting consent. I knew we would get to that point, but I'm glad we did anyway. I'm also glad we we're talking about the complexities of identity. I want to turn it on its head and just say briefly that this isn't obviously just a paper for open source researchers, people producing research. It's a paper for anyone in the open source ecosystem who's drawing any conclusions about anything going on in their projects. If you are an open source maintainer and you're thinking about your new first time contributors or your drive bys or your users, you are making assumptions based upon the data that you have collected. And that data will inevitably be flawed by your biases. 
And what this paper is trying to do is highlight where those biases may be and what the best practices may be for thinking about them and correcting them, which is really exciting and is good work. Also applies to anyone doing anything at policy level. And by policy, I mean any conversation that has to do with any decision you're making that's going to affect a community. Doesn't have to be at the federal EU level. Deciding to use a different type of label on your GitHub issue is also policy. And unfortunately, we're running up on time, which means that I want to do one thing. I know I just got some angry faces in the video chat, which I will spare all the listeners. You can just imagine them. I would like to actually go through and read out simply the titles with no commentary to the points in the paper so that we can at least have people encouraged to go and learn a bit more. As mentioned, these are all chapters. The paper is actually fairly short. So you can go and read it and enjoy it. But we have reams and tomes worth of commentary on all of them. And you may have noticed that Juniper, Julia, and Amanda have a certain rapport, which they're very happy to share and bounce off each other forever at infinitum. And they would probably love to do so in a video chat if you are so interested and inclined. And you say, I have follow-up questions, please. Please, like, email them. That would be great. So let's go through and let's start with Amanda. Can you read number one again? Always treat open source ecosystems as systems in production. Juniper, number two. Assume that the economic incentive and availability of the people who keep the lights on are not evenly distributed. Julia, three. Examine all information online in a way that honors attached licenses or assumes the highest level of creator ownership for software, for data, for content, for all of it. Number four, be clear and specific about your observations, sampling methods, and documentation of data sources. Number five, use community best practices and improve ecosystem programs that already exist, even when this is not scientifically novel. Seek ground truth data from opt-in sources rather than inferential methods. Number seven, retain the socio element when scoping research questions of a socio-technical system. Number eight, get consent from and consult with communities being studied if gathering data about people in the community. And number nine, find the balance between privacy, ethics, and transparency when processing and sharing data. And you can find that paper in the show notes. You can Google the title, which is beyond the repository, best practices for open source ecosystems researchers. And I'm just so grateful that the three of you came on today to talk about it and also that you wrote this work in the first place. I really wish you had written a giant compendium and I look forward to that eventually coming out probably in around a month. That sounds like a good enough amount of time. Great. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about this sort of work? I think you've all been on the podcast, so we have all your socials. They're all in the show notes. But where can people learn more and follow along with this sort of stuff? Do you have particular blogs for this? Is there a Tumblr? There is not a Tumblr yet, but if you create one, let us know. I'd say the article is the best place to learn more. There's a great list of references, if we do say so ourselves, on the article itself. And beyond that... You're all available for comment on any of your socials. So please email them, send them a message, and they are all online in various places. So very exciting. Thank you so much. But don't leave yet. At the end of every show, as you know, it's the same. We have a special thing where we do a thing called Spotlight. We highlight people, projects, dog toys, whatever, that we feel just need more light shed on them because they're wonderful. So traditionally, the host goes first. So I'm going to say that my spotlight today is the 
Long Trail, which is the 273-mile trail, is the first long-distance hiking trail in the U.S., one of the first in the world, and I'm heading on it in around three minutes at the end of this podcast. And I'm just really grateful that these long-distance trails continue to exist thanks to amazing policies on behalf of the state, town, the county, and national levels, but also due to the wonderful communities that use them and continue to be communities of practice, much like open source. So the long trail, this one is for you. Amanda, what is your spotlight today? I'm going to squeeze in two, just because I didn't get to say it at the end. So the first one is contributor-experience.org. So this is a reference that was co-created by folks in NumFocus as a part of their work as contributor experience leagues in the scientific Python computing space. They presented on it at Skippy 2023. Some folks may call it SciPy. It is pronounced Skippy. That is Melissa Weber Mendoza, Ines Pawson, and then Noah Tamir. And I know Melissa's been on here before. I did not want to stop without saying we were talking about data and affecting people. So PyPy, the Python Packaging Index, released a report in the last, I think it's last month, about how they were subpoenaed by the U.S. government and asked to release information about maintainers and contributors. I want to applaud E.E. Durbin for releasing the transparency report, for reporting on what the information was concerned, and also for responding to how they are reconsidering their data retention policies into responses from such kind of requests coming now from governments and systems. Excellent. Thank you so much. Julia, what is your spotlight today? I'm worried it's the same one that I had the last time I was on Sustain. I don't know. And I'm going to say okay. it again because it deserves highlighting twice, if not more, which is the book Data Feminism. It is a fantastic book that Amanda is reminding me is open access. I encourage you to take your time and read a chapter, sit with it, reflect do some additional research from with the references, but it will change how you think about data, data systems, data collection, all of the data. So highly recommend. Excellent. Thank you. And Juniper. For this challenge, I was reflecting quite a bit on kind of the open source or open research tools that I use in my everyday life. And I thought a lot about the, the archive or Overleaf or things like that. But I want to highlight a, a new tool that's actually an open source project that was created by researchers. And this is XGI. This is the Complex Group Interactions Library. And it's a sort of collection of data structures and algorithms that are used to analyze networks and complex systems of higher order interactions. This is actually a perfect tool set if people are doing this really great ethical open source ecosystems research to be able to visualize and understand this data. And I think it's a really cool example of researchers also getting involved in creating open source tools. Excellent. Amazing. Thank you all so much for sharing those. The links will be in the show notes. There's a lot of other things in the show notes as well. Let me tell you about them. First off, in the show notes, you will find that you can go to discourse at saintoss.org to talk about this podcast if you like. You can also join the Open Collective Slack. It's the same OSS channel where we normally talk about such things. All of us will be on there. If you want to send an email just to the host of this podcast, you can do so at podcast at saintoss.org. That will go to me and the other hosts who are not on this podcast. That's okay. They're really cool. And you can just complain and be like, hey, why weren't you on this podcast too? You can also suggest, hey, you should talk to this person on the podcast in the future. And we'd be happy to have them on. That would be really, really dope. So please send along your comments and thoughts. If you want, send along your money. Yes, that's I, that's me. I'm asking you to pay. Go to opencollective.com slash the same OSS. And if you don't have any money to pay because you are an open source researcher, 
That's really, really cool. Guess what? Your institution may, and they can also donate and become sponsors of the podcast. And that would just be really cool too. If you need some deal for that, like a PDF to show up for management or like a logo, just ping me, Richard, org. Happy to talk about that. If you like this podcast, like it, like literally like press the heart button on any app that you're using or tell your friends. This is really a matter of love. We get like 300 listens per episode. That is super small. Every listener who like listens is amazing, but I don't see why we don't get 20,000 people because there's 20,000 people working on open source. Come on, let's, let's go. This is on you, not me. I'm doing my best here. Anyway, I'm going to stop ranting. Amanda, Julia, Juniper, thank you all so much for coming on. It was super excellent. And I'm just really excited that you're doing this work. I look forward to the next paper and the book, of course. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks thank for having you. us.